Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital, dedicated to providing you with insights, assurance, and confidence to grow and manage generational wealth. Full Sail Capital is a fiduciary registered investment advisor managing more than $1.5 billion with a focus on integrity, competency, and transparency. Hey, thanks for joining us for another Squared Away episode. Today, I'm going to be joined by Scott Cravens and Zach Reynolds as we have a conversation just around everything that's going on in the investing world. What's going on in the market, the noise, the chaos, the angst. We're going to break all that down. We're going to hit pause and take a step back. Zach, of course, is our chief investment officer who's going to bring his knowledge and insight to the conversation. And I asked Scott to sit in to bring his experience and his insight and his knowledge and his conversations that he's having with clients at the conference table in homes, the things he's hearing, everything we talk about, everything we discuss, the questions we are faced with, they're all valid. They're all important. My goal is not to sit here and ignore the fear or the pain or the nerves that investors face. It's not uncommon. It's been going on for years. And these guys do a really good job of breaking it down, acknowledging the worries, acknowledging that there is a lot of noise out there right now. But both of these guys do a really good job of reminding us that it's so important to stick to the process, to remain disciplined. And it is vitally important to have a great team of advisors around you in in different areas of the market. It's something we've heard us preach about on here multiple times, but having a team in place is so important when it comes to your financial picture. Let's get to our conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it. Let me know if you have any feedback. As always, I'd love to hear it. Zach, Scott, thanks for joining me today for another Squared Away episode. I think it's a very timely episode. We could probably do one of these once a week just with everything going on lately. But Zach is always the leader of our investment team as our CIO here at Full Cell. I think it's so important to have you on here to give your opinion, your views, um, what we're telling clients. And then Scott, I thought it made a lot of sense today to have you sit in because as one of our relationship managers, you're in front of clients every day, facing a lot of these questions, getting a lot of these questions. So I thought it would be a good time to take a step back. Zach, let's get your side, your view on the in, the investment world, the markets, everything that's going on. And then Scott, let's break it down a little bit and, and find out what, what you're telling clients. What are the clients most fearful of right now? There is a lot of noise, a lot of angst, but there always is. So uh, I thought we'd address that. Zach, let's, let's start with you off the top. Just kind of give us an overview. You know, we've had, we're almost here at first quarter end. Give us kind of a market update. It got real depressing there for a little bit. And now we're, we've had a positive month, uh, most likely. So let's, uh, let's start there. Just give us kind of your opinion on the first quarter of the year. Yeah, it's been uh, a negative year in terms of returns, both for stocks and bonds. You know, when January was a down month, obviously, we felt a lot of angst, I think, from a lot of people. And I think our, our comments, and this is kind of pre what was going on in Russia and Ukraine, but we, we had to talk a lot with clients about how normal it is to see stock market declines. And to kind of put that more into uh, statistical terms for you, a 5% decline on average happens about three times a year. A 10% decline happens about once a year. We hadn't had one since March of 2020. 15% decline happens about once every three years. Mm. And then uh, once every six years, you have about a 20% decline or a, a real bear market. You know, something I ended up telling to a client who was was having some anxiety is, is look, you're, you know, f- let's say you're 50 years old. You've got 35, 40 years plus of investing to go. 
you're likely to have six or seven 20% declines uh, over your investing That's career. That's a good point. So, yeah. I mean, you, you have to have that mentality as an investor that you're you're going to go through some of those things. Now, in exchange for that risk, uh, and that's the thing we always have to keep in mind is there's no return without taking that risk or, or you're not going to earn as much return. You can go buy treasury bills and earn not much money and probably lose against inflation. But if you, you're going to take stock market risk, that means you've got to go through those 20% declines. Yeah. And that's not just going to be once or twice in your investing uh, time horizon. It's going to be several times. Mm -hmm. But in exchange for that, historically speaking, you've earned about 10% a year. Over the last 10 years, you've earned more than 10% a year. Right. So uh, nothing that had happened Nothing really that's happened all year is surprising in that sense. Obviously, when uh, you have geopolitical events that are scary, like we're seeing in Ukraine, that ramps up the fear level even more. You know, particularly when you start talking about nuclear powers potentially going against each other. Right. I heard something in the financial media the other day that I, I think is very true and is worth keeping in mind. We always like to think probabilistically, right? So... You know, there's there's some probability that Russia realizes they're in a bad place and they pull back and there's some negotiated peace. There's maybe a smaller probability that they increase what they're doing. Perhaps even maybe they detonate a, a tactical nuclear bomb, right? That's probably a lower probability, but it's not zero. Mm -hmm. Perhaps there's some chance that draws NATO in, right? And the worst case scenario, which let's all hope it's less, well, less small, than 1%, percent. but is some nuclear exchange between the U.S. and Russia. Well, that's, that's kind of a doomsday scenario, right? Mm -hmm. What the commentator said was, look, I understand the idea behind a doomsday trade, but it only works one time. And if you're right, you can't collect, right? You can't collect on a doomsday <laughs> trade because markets are done. Everything's done. You're, that ha yeah. you're worried about guns and, and food at that point. It's an interesting viewpoint. It's an interesting take because I don't think people yeah. view it like that because, again, it is a doomsday and hopefully it's ideally it's a very, very small percentage. People but. who put on bearish trades still have to believe that financial markets are going to function, right? right. Or, or otherwise they're just... You know, they're never going to yeah. collect on their bets. So I think that's worth worth keeping in mind. You have to think probabilistically. You have to invest. We have to invest money with the idea that over time, markets are going to increase. And, mm -hmm. and history is well on our side, even through very scary times, including, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis yeah. and other things that probably I think people who live through that would tell you are even scarier than what's going on today. I do think it's worth mentioning, though, as we talk about markets, the bond market performance. So stock okay. markets, they're going to have volatility. This is normal. We have not seen anything that is unusual in the stock market. We are seeing the worst ever performance from the bond market this year. So I think it's worth mentioning. It's not uh, unusual in the sense that uh, when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. And we have had a 30 plus year bull market in bonds going back to the mid 80s when interest rates peaked and then they've declined ever right. since then. Last year, we had a 10 year treasury rate below 1.5%. This year, we're well over 2%. When you have a big increase like that, you're going to have bond prices decrease. So people aren't used to seeing negative returns from their bond uh, portfolio. But again, it shouldn't be a surprise. It's It's been known for a long time that the Fed is going to have to turn around mm -hmm. at some point, start raising rates, start decreasing their balance sheet. That is finally happening. We had our first interest rate increase this last yeah. month, a 25 basis point, 0.25% increase. What is challenging, I think, for investors this year is they're seeing a portfolio. If, if you're a normal portfolio that's all publicly uh, traded securities and stocks and bonds, your stocks are down, your bonds are down. There's not really been any place to hide. 
you can argue cash at a 0% return, but you know, uh, yep. one of the reasons we're raising rates is we're seeing inflation at 7 8% plus at this yeah. point. So it, it's definitely a challenging market. It's not unusual and it's not surprising though. So to piggyback off that, Scott, when you're having these client conversations, that's a lot of negativity in this first, you know, three months of the year. How are you handling it? What are you hearing? Take the investment side of that and break it down into the the people side. What are what are people worried about? Yeah. Well, Zach's feeding everybody a lot of 1980s cough syrup, especially when he tells clients that there's basically going to be six occurrences of 20% pullbacks over the rest of their <laughs> investing career. But I think they need to hear it because yeah. one of the things is I meet with clients that you have to keep in mind as an advisor, and this is something that I'm always really sensitive to, is recency bias is powerful. And people over the last three years, you take COVID aside, markets have done essentially nothing but go straight up. And the expectation that clients seem to have is what happened the most recent is what's going to continue. They act that way when markets are going up and they act that way when markets are coming down. But to Zach's point, Drinking that cough syrup is important because it's a good reminder that markets have to reshuffle and and they do that as things change. And I think the worst thing you can do as an investor is begin to tighten yourself. And that's what clients tend to do. It's as soon as things look bad, they want to tighten in and, and and rein in and it's, oh man, I'm gonna hold on to this cash or I'm gonna create some cash or I'm gonna I'm gonna do it different than it than I've done it before. Hey, you get defensive. You get defensive. And I think our role as advisors is to instill our discipline mm -hmm. to those folks in helping them as a fiduciary make decisions for how they handle those sorts of crises or those sorts of economic reshufflings. I mean, to Zach's point, when bonds essentially have have really gone up in value for you know, 40 years, and then all of a sudden they begin to go the other way, we can help clients in a disciplined way prepare for that transition. We have conversations. What happens if this continues? What adjustments should we be making? Mm -hmm. But just like if you went into the medical world, you're not going to find a doctor who's going to do brain surgery on their own kid. Right. right. They're not going to do that. They're going to find another professional who's emotionally disconnected from that so they can use their expertise and their ability without emotion to make decisions and to execute on that medical issue. We're not brain surgeons, but we're doing the same thing. We're helping people execute financially without emotion in a way that's rooted in discipline. And that's what clients have to remember. The time to make an asset allocation change, which is always the root and the foundation of what we do mm -hmm. and what we preach when we work with clients, right. is not uh, because you know Russia invaded Ukraine. If there was a decision there that should have been made to alter, that should have been done way ahead of that. Right. That should have nothing to do with it. And that's the hard part. You know, to Zach's point, when you have clients that are, and I think the mid-50s is a great group age-wise to pick on, they tend to have this mentality that they have to be more conservative now because they're, quote unquote, closer to retirement. But from our seat, that's not what we're focused on because those folks may live to be 95 years old. So they've got another lifetime of investing horizon, many, many more market cycles they're going to have to get through both micro and macro before they reach the finish line financially. That's that's what we're trying to keep people in tune to. I read an interesting deal yesterday that Morgan Housel put out talking about, he was kind of taking a step back too and saying, if, if you think about how far we've come, yes, there's a lot of noise going on right now, but specifically he hit on to Scott's point, people are living longer, people are healthier, crimes down worldwide. So it's kind of one of those deals where, to your point, Scott, yeah, when you're in your 50s, you're no longer two-thirds of the way through your lifespan. You're 
halfway through for, for some people. Well, again, this is something that I've learned. I didn't anticipate this when I started in this business 15 years ago, but I've certainly learned it. Longevity risk is probably clients, one of their largest risks yep. that they fail to really put enough emphasis on. And I think because they discount that risk, other risks that they confront in the market yeah. cycles cause them to take actions that are contrary to what really is their greatest risk, which is that, yeah. you know, it's long lifespan and ensuring you have the assets to, to, to provide for yourself at different phases of life. Let's shift here a little bit. I think we could spend a lot of time on just the foreign turmoil, if you will. But let's talk a little bit about the Fed. One thing I love about these episodes is let's let's break it down to really where our clients, where our listeners are feeling this. So Fed's raised rates. Right. Or they've done their first rate raise, if yep. you will. Zach, what are you seeing from the investment side of things on how many more can we expect? I think everybody likes to put out their own numbers. Right. But how many more can we expect and where are we going to start feeling it? When will we start seeing it in a positive way? Maybe we'll earn a little bit more on the money market. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the the most immediate impact will be on the shortest term debt, or if you're a debt owner, those are bonds that come to your benefit. So money market funds will see a relatively quick increase. Okay. Uh, now, if you're earning 0.25 from zero, that's a big increase. But if inflation's running at 8%, you're yep. still losing more than 7% yep. a year on your money market fund. So it's certainly not to the point where cash looks like an attractive asset class in our view, but that's one impact. The other uh, impact, and as you think about the bond market, the Fed has really strong control over the very short end. So their Fed funds rate is what, what causes money market and short-term debt rates to change. When you move out along the debt spectrum, that is where you have other buyers, in, including people like us, private investors, other foreign governments, institutions that are the marginal buyer. And the mm -hmm. marginal buyer is going to be the one that sets the interest rate, right? Okay. So you've seen longer term debt yields go up as well. Again, the 10-year treasury's gone from less than one and a half percent to almost two and a half percent. Okay. So uh, right. we've seen a big increase there. As far as what we expect in the future, if you look at what the Fed is telling us, there may be another six increases in the Fed funds rate this year. There is more talk. At least two Fed governors have said they would be in favor of a 50 basis point increase. So it really depends on how much they increase in future meetings, what that year end Fed funds rate will be. Right. It's hard to say at this point, the Fed will tell you they're data dependent. So it depends on what the inflation rates, what happens with unemployment. You've got to remember the Fed has a dual mandate. They and we've talked about this in the past. We have. Let's yeah. remind. So Fed's dual mandate is stable prices, and that's a term of art. And right. the, the Fed has, has decided that they want a 2% inflation rate over the long term. Keep in mind, they've spent 10 years trying to get inflation up, and all of a sudden it's kind of gotten out of control. And what they had said in previous years was, we're going to let it run above our 2% target to let the long run average come up. Okay. Now you're seeing a lot of fear from the Fed that, hey, maybe we've let we've waited too long, we've let it get out of control. So that's one part of the Fed's uh, mandate. The other is full employment. And so again, another kind of term of art, what does that mean in terms of the inflation rate? We have yep. very, very low unemployment rate right now, unemployment rate is what I meant previously. So that's what the Fed has to kind of wrestle with. The challenge the Fed has right now is if they raise rates too rapidly, mm -hmm. it's possible they could cause a recession. That's going to increase the unemployment rate, which is going to go against one of their uh, two dual mandates. So they have a challenging job. You know, in my view, the Fed has uh, had to carry way too much water over the last 10 or 15 years, ha has done things that probably should have been done at the congressional level, but it definitely has impacts on uh, client portfolios. 
I think it's one thing that I'm writing about for our next market update is how we value the stock market. And it's interesting if you think about what the right price for the stock market is. I think it is very reasonable and has been factually accurate to say that the stock market has traded at a higher earnings multiple because interest rates have been so low. And there's okay. lots of academic explanations you can put on that, that stocks are long duration assets, long duration assets increase in value and interest rates are low. So as interest rates rise, you would expect that the stock market would trade at a lower earnings multiple. Okay. So what this means, and this is a conversation I've been having with clients a lot. I talk to business owners a lot consumers are buying. There's a ton of demand. In fact, there's not enough supply right now. That's right. the problem. There's right. tons of demand. Companies are doing well. Earnings are growing. I think we'll set an all-time record probably on the S&P 500 for earnings this year. But you could have earnings grow, but the stock market earnings multiple go down and have a negative return in the stock market. And I think that's conceptually sometimes hard for for people to think about, hey, companies are doing great. They're growing their earnings. Why is my portfolio right. not growing? So just think about, uh, all right, if at, at a 1.5% 10-year treasury, the quote-unquote right price for the S&P 500 in terms of an earnings multiple, maybe it's 20 or 22 times. Well, let's say at 25 or 3, maybe it's 16 times, which is closer to the to long-term right. average, right? So that's a big decrease in mm -hmm. the stock market value, even as earnings uh, could be increasing. So that's something I'm going to write about. And I, th I think that's an important point for investors to understand. You could have a stock market go down just because people value stocks a little bit lower than they did in the past. That doesn't mean that stocks are a bad thing to own. Right. You're still having to make a choice among all the investment asset classes in an inflationary environment where interest rates are still well below the inflation rate, which to my mind makes stocks still a pretty attractive asset class. So Scott, I'm going to go this direction with you on what Zach just kind of said that we've got, you've got these different asset classes and clients are trying to figure out the best place to go. To your point earlier, they get defensive. They think I'll just go to cash, but we've basically established now that that's a losing game uh, with this environment. How are you having that conversation with clients on, again, we've got to understand where they're coming from. We completely understand that this is an emotional topic we're talking about with people's finances. How are you encouraging investors to stay the course, stick to the process? The one thing I try not to talk about with clients is what the Fed is doing. I leave that up to Zach, but I try to instead get them to focus on what it's going to mean for them as not only an investor, but as a consumer and giving them yeah. things that's easier for them to watch for. So like one of the interesting dynamics is, you know, interest rates that impact consumers are things like mortgages and auto loans and credit cards. For our clients, credit card rates aren't exactly a priority, but, you know, mortgage rates and, and auto rates are an interesting thing to watch. What you've seen in anticipation of rates going up is banks had, had already started raising their mortgage rates mm -hmm. and, and lenders were doing that in anticipation. And so you see a little bit of that front running. What's not really changing is what they're offering on deposits, money markets. That hasn't happened. And Zach alluded to why that is, but it's because there's still so much money moving around through the economic system. Banks don't have to do that yet. And, and I think what consumers think is they have these old playbooks. Well, as soon as rates rise, I'll get CDs or I'll, I'll find something that's safer. I think it's going to be a while before CD rates rise. I joke with clients when I talk to them, I said, listen, the good old days of 2019, when we were getting 2.4 to 2.6% on premium money market, those days are over. And I know yep. it was only three years ago, but the world changed mm -hmm. and it could reshuffle and change again. 
I think what I try to do, like I said earlier, is when I'm visiting with clients, I'm focused on their individual objectives. So it is absolutely specific to them what they need their account to do over time. So if I've got a client who's behind in terms of retirement planning based on what they want to spend, to Zach's point, you really can't avoid being invested in the equity markets and you have to do so aggressively. At the same time, I always advise clients not to take more risk than they need to to obtain their goals. And so there are conversations about do we shift asset allocation? When do we do that? What would improving fixed income rates mean for their ability to do that? Those are the kinds of conversations I think people have to have. But it's watching this unfold is pretty interesting. I do think, and and I'd love to get Zach's thought on this, but it does feel like there's a little bit of a, an economic reshuffle that's kind of beginning to unfold. Okay. And it'll be interesting to see is, as rates continue to rise, if the, if, if the Fed funds rate were to increase where they said to 2.75% by early 2023, how has that shifted the economic landscape? Would it be enough to push us into a recession? You know, how do you respond to that? Those are the things that I think I'm trying to figure out how to articulate to clients in a way that they can digest it yeah. and, and decide what it means for them. Yeah. Two thoughts there, Scott. So one thing we haven't touched on is the benefit and the silver lining of rising interest rates. And yes, it causes pain now. We are seeing negative bond returns. But on the other side of this, we're going to have higher yields. And that means a part of the portfolio that almost every client has, the, the bonds, is going to start producing income that is more meaningful than what we've seen for a while now. So I think that's important. The other thing, and Scott, I know you had a, a conversation with a client kind of relevant to this fairly recently, but why do we own bonds? Even in an environment where we're, we're almost certain bonds are going to lose money against inflation, why would we own bonds? So we talked about stock market volatility earlier. We don't know what's going to, no one knows what's going to happen in the stock market over the next three, six months, one year. It's, it's just hard to say because we don't know what's going to happen in the world. The reason we own bonds is those bonds aren't going to have the same amount of volatility as the stock market is. So for a client who is needing distributions from the portfolio or may need distributions over the next three to five years, it's important to have some part of the portfolio that isn't exposed to stock market risk. Scott, you may talk about the way you positioned the role the fixed income part of the portfolio plays in terms of how many years a client would have to go of taking distributions before they actually had to sell a stock. Yeah. Lawyers and financial advisors are guilty of trying to make themselves sound smart. So they try to use, and I can say this because I'm both of those things. <laughs> I was going to say. They, they use big words and they, and they want to speak to clients in a way that makes them feel knowledgeable and position themselves as the expert. Unfortunately, that is not an effective way to communicate with clients. Agreed, right. And something that I learned, and I really adopted this when COVID occurred, because at the outset of COVID was that, you know, clients saw their portfolios on the equity side decrease dramatically in a very short period of time. And that creates, for obvious reasons, concern and, and a little bit of panic. But what I took to doing, which is what Zach's alluding to, is the fixed income component of portfolios as an asset allocation, yes, it's supposed to generate income. It hasn't done a spectacular job of that. But maybe its more important role is actually allowing clients to have the right psychological mentality to avoid and hedge against what we talked about earlier, which is longevity risk. And so I had this client, she's in her 80s, and she called, this is in April of 20, and she said, you know, Scott, I'm really concerned about this. Is there something we should do different? Should I? And, and I said, hey, relax. I said, you told me that you spend X number of dollars a year. Is that still true? 
She said, yes. And I said, okay, I have seven years worth of that amount based on your asset allocation in fixed income, which has the same value essentially today that it did the day before COVID became a thing. Right. And if we needed to draw on that, we could do it for seven years before we ever had to touch a share of stock or, you know, any, anything in your equity portfolio. And it disarmed her in a, from a fear mentality. Mm -hmm. And that's, if you're an advisor, that's what you're trying to do is you're trying to break people away from either a greed mentality or a fear mentality. And you do that by creating reliable or relatable data points for them to hang on to. Mm -hmm. So she gets off the phone. I said, listen, you've happy hour today, right? She said, yeah. I was like, go back to your happy hour. Enjoy your friends. Yeah. Uh, enjoy your back patio. That's what it's for. Right. I'll handle this. And relieving them of that burden is important. And I think to Zach's point, that is really what fixed income as an allocation, that's one of its primary objectives. And it is still achieving that even in the environment we're in today, because even though portfolios are down on the fixed income side, as Zach alluded to, it's nowhere near what we've seen equities do since the start of 2022. Anybody who's listened to our podcast, they've heard of our investing philosophy. If you're a new time listener, go back and listen to them because we, we kind of set it up and tee it up. What are some of the portfolio adjustments, though, or tilts that you're seeing that might benefit the client, though? Right. Yeah. One thing, and I'm glad you brought up our, our long-term philosophy, because I think it's important to say that we don't like to make big bets. I know of some people who, back in 2008, 2009, when the government first came out with TARP and some of the what seemed like huge amounts of money, $800 billion, <laughs> which now seems like a couple pennies right. relative to what we've done through COVID. But they saw that and they said, look, we're going to have hyperinflation. I mean, we have to just look historically, you know, I, therefore, I'm not going to buy any bonds. Well, that was a terrible decision. In fact, the longest duration bonds did mm. the best from 2008, yeah. 2000. I mean, it, they produced tremendous returns. So I always approach with this with a lot of humility. Yeah. Uh, and what that means is it's very unlikely you'll see us be completely void of a particular area of the market. That said, I do think you want to be thoughtful about where you may have a little extra emphasis or, okay. or what uh, the exposure to the portfolio is. So one thing that we think uh, or a decision we made was to transition our TIPS exposure, which is Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, which are U.S. government bonds, which protect against inflation. A standard TIPS ETF might have a relatively long duration, which means that there are two components of return there, the inflation protection component and then interest rates, uh, which longer duration ETFs benefit when interest rates go down and they're hurt when interest rates go up. So what we decided to do is move out of that longer duration TIPS product into a shorter duration TIPS product. Okay. The idea there being that we're really looking for inflation protection, not so much a bet on interest rates going down. So things like that can be helpful. As Scott talked about earlier, asset allocation is one of the most important things. For quite a while now, we've been having conversations with clients who maybe they started a 60-40 allocation in recognition that bonds can't really produce their historical average rates of returns, given right. where interest rates were. Maybe 70-30, if the client has an appropriate risk tolerance mm -hmm. and time horizon, uh, makes more sense. And then for our higher net worth clients who have longer time horizons and, and the sophistication to understand private investments, that's been a really interesting spot for us to look as well, including things like private credit opportunities where the loans that are made within those funds are floating rate. So in other words, you compare that to a fixed rate, a 10-year treasury where you're going to have fixed coupon uh, interest rate for the life of the bond. Floating rate debt is going to be tied to a reference rate. So right. maybe it's LIBOR, which is kind of going away now, but let's use LIBOR as the example. As LIBOR goes up, the interest, uh, the cost of that debt 
for the borrower is going to go up as well. So as the owner of that debt, as we would be, mm-hmm. we're going to see higher income. So that's a way to protect against uh, rising rate interest rates as well. And then finally, a conversation we've been having a lot too is how do stocks do in a higher inflation environment? And the answer is stocks tend to do okay. I mean, depending on how quickly inflation goes up, how quickly interest rates go up relative to inflation. But I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but companies have pricing power. So they can increase their prices. They're going to increase their prices if they want to make a profit. That's going to hurt consumers to some extent. Mm -hmm. But as we talked about earlier, consumers are still in pretty good shape. So I think we've got a window of time here where companies have that pricing power. If you go, you know, buy an airline ticket or take a vacation or go to the grocery store this summer, you're going to see higher prices. You're probably going to be able to pay them still. So those companies can still maintain those profit margins. And and I'll just add, companies are going to see what holds and what doesn't. I was listening to another podcast and it was talking about a clothing company that raised prices on its t-shirts. It makes these like really comfortable kind of higher end t-shirt. And then it also makes pants and it tried to raise the pricing on its pants or I'm sorry, its shirts and immediately sales went way down. So they cut the price back they raised the pricing on the pants to make up for their overall cost, their raw material cost increases, and customers accepted the price increase on the pants that they wouldn't accept on the shirts. Huh. To Zach's point, yes, and I don't want to talk too out of turn in just terms of prediction about what's there, but if you see inflation, people, you're going to see markets probably try to correct on that. But the point is, is that companies can make adjustments too. And to Zach's point, on a longer term basis, because they can make those adjustments, they can figure out what's going to stick and adjust those prices. And that's one of the things I use again to, you know, this is not like disrespectful to clients, but just, you know, like you got to kind of dumb things down because they don't, they stop listening when you start going off the deep end about interest rates and inflation and tips and S tips and, you know, <laughs> but what you say is, listen, in the long-term basis, do you think that a bottle of Coke is going to cost more 10 years from now than it does today? Yeah. That's exactly why companies can adjust for inflation and why yeah. you don't need to own equities long-term. Okay. Well, as we wrap up guys, another popular topic continues to be blockchain, crypto, NFT, that whole that whole market. What are you hearing, Zach, from the investment side? What are you seeing, Scott? What are you hearing from the client side? And, and let's kind of let's kind of end there. I get approached much more frequently now from lots of firms out there who are creating crypto funds, who are trying to make money off of the investing craze around crypto and NFT and other things. I have been very consistent in in my views, and and have we've talked about this many times on the podcast. Just to briefly recap, I think the blockchain technology is really cool. I think cryptocurrencies themselves are in, incredibly difficult to impossible to value from a fundamental investment standpoint. They don't create any cash flows, and they're only worth what the the next person is willing to pay. In economics, we call that the greater fool theory because you are hoping to buy it and sell it to a greater fool than you. That doesn't mean that people haven't made millions of dollars investing, investing in quotes here, um, in cryptocurrency. So good for them. I think that's great. I've been very content to sit on the sidelines and and read and, and learn about it and watch it. I am increasingly convinced after reading through comments from bank regulators and the Fed that crypto will increasingly become mainstream. Along with that, it's going to be subject more and more to regulation. And I think that will probably not be well received by people who have been these uh, move fast and break things, crypto uh, entrepreneurs. And I think it's likely to decrease some of the upside that people see in cryptocurrencies. That, that That's my own view. But the idea that you're going to have this 
currency that's increasingly adopted that's completely outside of banking regulations, I think is yeah. increasingly, it's increasingly clear that that is not going to be the case. I actually had a, an attorney come in this morning and I hosted a small group of people in our office for a little coffee event and she's developed her, her legal practice around understanding blockchain and crypto and NFTs okay. and securitization, token securitization right. and so, so forth. Pretty interesting. A couple things to piggyback off what both she said and then what Zach said. Clients and investors are becoming aware of the government's focus on what's happening in cryptocurrency because of the form their CPA put in their hands uh, to onboard them this year. And one of the big things the IRS wants to know is, did you engage in any cryptocurrency transactions in 2021? Mm -hmm. That tells you what's coming. Uh, they know there's a framework that's needed. And as that framework develops, you know, the interesting thing about currency is currency has zero intrinsic value. The US dollar has zero intrinsic value. So does Bitcoin or anything else. It only has value because the government says it does. Mm -hmm. Well, to Zach's point, if the government says we're not going to allow this stuff anymore, that risk is enormous. Right. And it has an absolute interest in doing it. And I think the irony is that it also has an interest in letting it run a little while and watching what happens and watching how people use it. And they're kind of falling right into what I think the government feels like is a great trap is once they see how it's being used. Like, so one of the things that this attorney spoke about this morning is she said, Bitcoin mining is not, people mistake that as they're trying to actually get Bitcoin. They're not. They're selling shovels to the people rushing for gold. And so they're creating this infrastructure that facilitates those transactions and they get paid what's called, I think she called it a gas fee, which I'd not heard of personally because it's not my area That's of expertise. That, that gold comparison is really interesting. But she, but that term mining was done to, to help people feel that way, but really the people that are making the money are the ones that are facilitating those transactions. In the, in the middle. Exactly. And and so that goes back to the analogy is in a gold rush, you want to be the guy selling shovels. Right. And they're doing a great job of that. But the IRS factor, the currency risk in terms of fiat currencies deciding that they're the loser if blockchain cryptocurrency you know based mm -hmm. coins become a thing is really something to watch. And I think, honestly, I think what, to Zach's point too, I think what's happened in, in with uh, Russia and Ukraine is going to be interesting to see if that doesn't incentivize governments to put a framework in place more quickly because they're watching things evolve there where yeah. people are using cryptocurrency to evade things like sanctions, which are a very important tool for our Western yeah. governments to be able to, to leverage. So it's interesting still. Hmm. Anything else we left out? As always, I would just say if, if you're not a client and you hap happen upon this podcast um, and you're not working with an advisor, the thing to remember is, as we've talked about and alluded to, a long-term objective is what you use to make decisions from, not feelings about what may happen in the short run. And I would encourage anybody uh, that's not getting advice from someone, uh, you're not going to provide heart surgery for yourself. Go find an advisor who you can trust, who's a fiduciary to provide you competent guidance because the next year is going to be pretty interesting. I, I could not agree more with that, Scott. And, you know, I think it's one of the reasons we do these podcasts is to help uh, disseminate our thought process, both to our clients and to people who may, may be interested in the topics. But it's so important to work with someone who has a plan and a strategy and discipline. If you're working with an advisor who seemed panicked, in January when stocks were down 5% and bonds were down or 
when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, then I'm sorry, that person is not doing a good job. You should have a playbook in advance for things like that. There should be a discipline that's consistent across different market cycles. That's how, in in my view, you're going to have the best long-term outcomes for your wealth. Uh, And I think that, I, I know, Scott, you agree with this. I think we as advisors can add more value through difficult times, through volatile times than we do when, you know, oh. 2019, when markets just go no straight doubt. up. You know? I'll give that a financial amen. Amen. <laughs> Guys, I, I appreciate it. Talk again soon. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please review and subscribe through your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week. All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. 